welcome to the second half of the first season of the Sano KNOW.org podcast. This is the place where we have been discussing everything drug related from policy, crime, research. We talk about what's going on on the streets, we talk about what's going on in the universities and the research areas, and uh, we talk to people with lived experience and we discuss ideas on how we can make things just a bit better. We receive funding for this podcast from the Canadian Research Initiative of Substance Misuse. You can check out the great work that they are doing at chrismprairies.ca. Please note that the views and opinions expressed in our podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Chrism or any of their members, and the views also do not necessarily represent the views of my employer or any organization that I'm associated with, and the same goes for our guests. A big shout-out to DJ Charlie Hustle. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for providing the excellent music that you've been hearing both on the intro and outro of our podcasts. Everybody that's listening right now, please hit the subscribe button. It helps. Also go to our Facebook page. Engage with us there if you've got questions, comments, uh, concerns, you've got new ideas, anything. Head, to the, head, head on to social media. Send us a tweet. Um, challenge us. Uh, we're all in this together. We're all trying to make this world just a little bit better. We're trying to find some solutions at work. So I hope you enjoy the second half of this season. I sure enjoyed making it. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the SayNoKNOW.org podcast. Today I have a friend of mine, Jason Mercury, with me. Jason is the director, executive director of AIDS Saskatoon. And if you've been paying any attention at all to what's been going on in harm reduction, what's been going on uh, in our opiate crisis that we have across the country, we often hear about the HIV and AIDS epidemic. So I thought there was no better person to talk to about this issue than Jason Mercury. Thanks for coming on today, Jason. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Jason, what's happening in the, in the worlds of AIDS when it comes to our community and then the country? Uh, so uh, Saskatchewan has been leading Canada in the HIV rates for well over a decade now. Um, there's a, it's kind of a lot of reasons why we are, uh, one of them is our unique circumstances as to how we lead the nation. So the main mode of transmission in Saskatchewan is injection drug use. Um, no other province has that as their main mode of transmission for HIV. A lot of it's sexual contact. Okay. And so, um, so we're really in a unique situation here, which is why we, our numbers have been so high for so long, uh, uh, engaging this population is quite difficult, takes a long time to build up trust. Uh, and, um, you know, we're, we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of gaps in service services as a result so when you say uh the transmission is through intravenous drug use so we're talking sharing needles still as being a big yep. issue sharing needles still so whether it's access to needles which we do know that there's some access especially in the overnight hours um is a big issue uh the other is we do have trap houses that people tend not to leave and so it becomes a bit of a shooting gallery in those trap houses so Definitely. um and when you when service providers aren't able to engage in those trap houses it can become quite a quite a serious issue uh in terms of people sharing within those settings and then the other is just uh when you get remote and rural access access um, and uh, lack of access, I should say, to, to new equipment, uh, new injection equipment. Yeah. Uh, you're going to have to use whatever whatever is laying around. Um, on top of that, we for them for the main drug of choice in Saskatchewan, it's crystal meth for the most part. Right. And so people are using it at a high level, um, you know, and, and as a result, they're sharing needles. Wow. 
So, so even with all the, I mean, how, lo how long have you guys been doing a needle exchange program in Saskatoon? So we were doing it before it was legal. We've had our needle exchange in operation for about uh, 10 years now uh, at this site. And then um, before that, we were doing it for around 10 years before that. That was before my time, but you know, God bless those folks. They're, yeah, no they're doing the good work. And so, um, uh, yeah, so we've, we've been operating our needle exchange We're we're, I think we're probably the smallest or second smallest needle exchange in the city. Okay. Um, a lot of times though, we get the most media attention, uh, especially when improperly discarded needles get found. Uh, a lot of times that's not in our needle exchange catchment area. Our catchment's kind of the Mayfair Caswell area. Okay. And I'm not saying there aren't, um, loose needles in the neighborhood. Yep. Uh, but we, we are very diligent about doing uh, weekly patrols, daily patrols in the neighborhood to make sure that we, um, we're picking up uh, as many rigs as we can on a bad week we'll find you know maybe two three oh, well. um but for the most part uh, improperly discarded needles in pleasant hill uh riversdale area yeah and so we employ summer students to uh, patrol those areas in the summer and uh, you know they pull in quite a bit so we're pretty vocal about the need to make sure that exchanges are you know doing our part to keep community safe not just for the clientele but the general right. public as well right interesting so do, so how many needles roughly do you know in how how much in our community how many needles are given out and exchanged? Uh, I think I think close to 1.4 million last year, if my memory serves me correct. Um, so we we don't we're not even close to like a quarter like of those numbers. I think we're we do a couple hundred thousand a year. So okay. um, uh, we're we're not uh, we're we're not the main needle exchange, but we, I think we have the most complimentary services around our needle exchange because it is in our drop-in center. And so we have a lot of outreach workers. We have multiple staff available and we also just have a safe place for people to uh, sit and stay. And uh, that goes a long way. A lot of times you can have all the services available, but if people don't feel comfortable and they can't actually, you know, um, put their feet up, relax, get some food in them, get some coffee in them. Right. Um, it's not going to necessarily do, do uh, the engagement piece that you need. Right. So do you guys do a lot of engagement then as well with your with your clients? Yeah, we that's uh, relationships. We don't sacrifice the relationships no matter what. And so wow. uh, we we work really hard to keep those positive relationships with everybody that we work with. Uh, you know, and I'm not saying that people don't get angry with us sometimes or yeah. we get frustrated, but it's still we're paid. We have to be professional. And so we don't ban anybody. Um, we, we stopped our banning policy a couple of years ago just because we saw that what was happening in the wider community in terms yeah. of organizations that ban people people and and how that really negatively affected people's um health yeah, and so yeah and so we don't we don't ban folks um uh you know if somebody's having a bad day we'll ask them to go for the day if it's something really serious we might ask them to go for you know the week right. um but you we usually it's only a day or two that we'll just say you know come back tomorrow we'll chat tomorrow when they come in a lot of times they're just in a bad spot for that right. 20 minute period or maybe hour right. period and so um why do we keep keep people bound because I don't know about you, but I'm very different than I was two years ago, three years Definitely. ago, you know, five years ago. So why do we keep holding these behaviors against people? Right. Um, you know, and, and just because somebody has a bad day, if you got judged on your worst behavior on your worst day, um, you know, none of us would be able to do be functional members of society. And, uh, we just don't think it's the way to go. Right. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, um, I, I parent a fairly high needs, uh, teenager right now. And, and, when, when we first adopted my son, uh, I mean, that's, that's in the material. They're going to test, they're going to test these relationships. They're going to test this trust. And they, you know, I don't when, with parenting my son, I mean, he really put us, our family through hell for a long time just to see, like, are you going to back out? Like everyone else in my life is mm -hmm. backed out. So I think that, that piece probably 
the fact that you guys don't have a banning policy here probably goes a long way to really instill that trust in your client that, oh, wait a sec, this is an organization that's actually going to care for me even when I'm being an asshole. Yeah, and uh, like the way predictability is safety. And so the thing I've seen with bounding policies, even when we had a bounding policy in place, it was even if you have parameters around why people get bound, yeah. there's just a lot of wiggle room, I find, you know, depending on how much you like the client, how much you don't like the client, uh, past experiences. And so it becomes very unpredictable when you start bounding clients because there's always this wiggle room on either side for allowances or being more strict than you probably should. And so what that actually does to not just that client, but all the clients is it makes them feel unsafe because they don't know what to predict right. out of every time they have a, uh, have an incident. So versus they know what to predict, they're going to be asked to go for that day, but that doesn't mean that they're going to be asked to go forever. That that does a lot to instill that trust in them and to show that exactly what you're saying, that we're not going to quit on them just because they're having a bad day. Are we Are we just like every other person in their yeah. life that's abandoned them or, or uh, stopped engaging with them service provider-wise? And so, um, you know, it's something that we've given a lot of thought of and it's because I, I came from mental health. And, uh, you know, it there, you, you're there with that person no matter what. Right. And that person can have the most violent day on the planet. You still have to be back in there the next day supporting them, professional and willing to forgive, you right. know, and love that person. And so um, we really try to instill that with our clients that we work with here. So do all your clients here, are they affected by HIV or AIDS? No, so we, we don't ask people either. So um, we, we have a rough number, you know, we, we have about you know, 350 to 400 given a year um, that we work with that are HIV positive. We have even more than that that are hep C positive, uh, but we don't ask people. So anybody can come into our drop-in center. Anybody can engage with our services. We don't we don't specify whether they are or aren't. If people okay. want to talk about that with us, you know, we have all the materials available. We make sure we get them to the right doctors, you know, over predominantly at the Westside Clinic just because they are so good to our clientele. Right. Um, you know, and we'll, we try to get them in the right situations that they can engage those conversations. And if we, we also do trivia, so we'll do HIV bingo, hep C bingo. So it doesn't matter if people are positive or not. We talk about testing. We talk about right. the medications. And then that usually gets a dialogue going. We also do movies, um, those types of things, uh, just ways to engage people in a positive way not in the scary tactic right, way, you know, right. and, and making sure that they're well-informed before they make that decision. And anytime somebody does want to get tested, we make sure we get them tested that minute. So um, we're, we're pretty good about that. So if someone's coming in and they're, they're an intravenous drug user and they don't haven't yet contracted HIV or AIDS, I mean, you're giving them a ton of information about Yep. you know, healthy decisions and how they can probably use to the best and, you know, I guess mitigate some of that risk. Yeah. And a lot of times it's, they'll say they're good. And then I'll say, well, you're getting, say they get enough needles that I know they're potentially using with somebody else. Yeah. I'll say, you might be good, but everybody's got a friend who's a moron and right. that friend's going <laughs> to, that friend's going to steal your drugs or try to shoot your needle or maybe yeah. whatever when you're not looking. And so make sure you have enough supplies for them. And then it also leads into conversation. See, sometimes you'll try to talk about to somebody about HIV, saying the needle exchange but they're just yeah. not ready for it. But then uh, they refuse alcohol swabs. So then we can have a talk about endocarditis, which is an oh. infection that infects people's uh, on their on their heart valves, their brain, or their, or their spinal column. Okay. And um, a lot of times we get people in hospital for that infection. And so we'll talk to them about that. And a lot of our folks know what endo is. They don't necessarily know the ins and outs, but we can yeah. talk about how to avoid it. And so then they'll say, oh, should I be using alcohol swabs every time? Oh, you bet. And if you've ever shared a needle or you left out a needle overnight then used it the next morning, the chance bacteria grows on there. So, oh, I shared 
shared a needle. Oh, did you share a needle? Do you ever want to get tested? No, I'm busy today. Okay, well, if you ever do, we're here. We'll we'll get you tested right away. And you don't you don't force the conversation or right. force them to do something right away. Yeah, I might got my my outcome measurables right in that moment, but that person's going to stop engaging with me. And when you're looking at trying to get people out of these situations or out of, over the hump that they're dealing with right now, you can't sacrifice that relationship for anything. So I might have got what I need out of the relationship, but did they get what they needed? And a lot of times what they need is somebody safe to talk to. Right. And if you're just trying to force all your stuff to get your your education check mark, oh, I talked to somebody about right. HIV today. Good. I got right. that stat taken care of. It's You're doing yourself a disfavor and you're doing the client a, a, probably a irreparable, irreparable harm. Right. So it's all about building that relationship and those take time. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Fair enough. So, so when it comes to what are our actual HIV and AIDS rates right now in our in our country or in Saskatchewan? So we're sitting at about uh, at about three times the national average, uh, which is not not good. Um, uh, so that means compared to other parts of the country, where we have three, you're three more, three times more likely to have HIV um, in Saskatchewan. And a lot of times, you'd be surprised at the people that we get that contract it. You know, professionals. A lot of times, we get farmers who, you know, are sleeping with, uh, are sleeping with uh, uh, women who work the streets. Right. Um, you know, or or there's a lot. We're starting to get a lot more younger people who use drugs. You know, especially with the economy downturn, um, we're seeing people turn to drugs. Yeah, has happened. Same in Alberta, yeah. and so um, so we get people from all walks of life uh, uh, coming into our offices, and a lot of times I get the, you know, the stereotypical "I'm not gay," and then it's like, yeah, but like you actually <laughs> you actually at the least risk if you're if, if you you're are. if yeah. you are, yeah. That's where the where that's one thing that a group like Out Saskatoon has done very well is engaging their population in uh, in health services, preventative health services, you know, and uh, that's actually the lowest that's actually the lowest uh, marker for risk. Um, you know, the highest risk is injection drug use, as I said, then the okay. next highest is, is, uh, is heterosexual sex. Um, and so a lot of times we have people that just don't think they're at risk. And right. so, um, you know, we, we try to encourage safer sex practices, uh, non-shame based, you know, and if, and encouraging people to get tested. And then tr- a lot of times when we get people that get tested and they don't test positive, we use that as an edu- educational experience to try to talk to them about, uh, how to make sure that they, they stay HIV negative. Right? right. And if they are HIV positive wraparound support, of course. Right. And so then when, when you talk about getting someone tested, are you, do you do some sort of testing right here in your facility or you drive them to the So we take, we take them to the Idlewild Medical Clinic. We have a, a deal worked out with them where we can take people in and we get bumped to the front of the queue. Nice. Um, yeah, and if, if they're full or closed, say plumbing or something, and we also yeah. have uh, Saskatoon Sexual Health Network that we can, or Saskatoon Sexual Health that we can take people to down uh, by the bus mall or Westside Clinic, of course, we'll always always prioritize our folks. And so... Um, so we're we're pretty good about getting tested. Um, there's like I could get, I get a grant and get a nurse in here to get um, testing uh, to have testing on site, but I actually don't think that that's going to solve the problem. One of the things that we're working towards with a group of people is deregulating HIV rapid testing. So mm-hmm. for those people that don't know, there's a, a type of HIV test that it's basically like getting your diabetic sugars tested, where you prick your finger, some oh. blood, you put it into a little vial, you mix it with some chemicals, and then you get your HIV results in under a minute. Okay. Uh, so um, um, there's that test that we're uh, working with a group to see about doing a trial wow. and getting it deregulated so that uh, health care providers aren't the only ones that can provide that test. We could also have it provided through um, through uh, outreach workers. And we have extensive outreach team. All of our staff, except for two of us, three of us are outreach related. And so, um, you know, and we got, you know, 32 staff. So that's a lot of people that just our agency could do, let alone groups in Prince Albert, uh, Yorkton, 
you know, all over Canada. Yeah. And so we were working towards getting uh, that test deregulated because it's, I could test my dad's blood sugars. Why can't right. I test somebody for HIV? And plus it's shown that the people that are the best people to provide that follow-up support are peers right. who we have on staff. And yeah. so why can't a peer provide that test and then provide the post-test counseling, immediate engagement and services rather than saying, oh, you know, you should go talk to eight Saskatoon up on 33rd. Yeah. And it's a and barrier. Yeah. barrier, exactly. Yeah. And so, and even us, it's a barrier to say, okay, we'll take you down to Idlewild as fast as we can, as they can get us in, which is lightning quick. It's still a barrier, right? right. And so eliminate those. Um, the Saskatoon Tribal Council, um, I don't mean to speak for them, but they've done some very good work in terms of dry blood spot testing, which is another type of test where uh, you, same thing, you prick your finger, a drop of blood comes out, and then you dab five drops of blood on this blotter on this blotter sheet, okay. and then you let it dry. Once it dries, you mail it off. It goes to a lab in Winnipeg. Winnipeg can test the samples. They can get the they can get the type of HIV you have, your viral load, everything, you know. And so then the results come back within two weeks. One, it gives people some time to think about their test results. So right. Some people don't want that fast test. Uh, but the other is it's just one of the lowest barrier test forms. There's potentially even to do it in people's homes so people right. can go and pick it up from the store. Maybe we have some supplies here we could give it out and people can find out their HIV status. Uh, there is some questions around linkage to care after that test, but I just don't think it's a bad thing to have more types of testing available. Right. Yeah. Um, and SDC offers that on reserve. I look forward to the day when we can all offer that off reserve. And so, um, you know, the the they're really leading on that within their home communities. And we think that that is best practice and it should be adopted wider. Yeah, so 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 those quick little tests. I mean, that could even help with, with the shame associated to mm -hmm. getting tested, right? Because yep. if you've suddenly formed that form that idea in your mind that shit like I might actually be HIV positive and I need to get a test now I have to physically go somewhere whereas if there if there I mean if there were these things readily available maybe at my house that I'm often using at or yep. at the trap houses or wherever or when the outreach worker comes outreach pick me up worker. they can do it in the car you yeah. know like uh, while we're driving and so we get some privacy and all that stuff right right uh, yeah and so the, the 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 stigma around getting tested and um, the barriers around that one of the ways that we have tried to address that nationally is we founded uh, the Canadian uh, National HIV Testing Day uh, so it started in Saskatoon uh, in 2017 no sort of 2016 there's wow. yeah there's a small group of us uh, the Friendship Center, uh, they had a very good worker there who was like, we should try to do a, a citywide testing day. Yeah. So all of us were like, this is great. So with no money, we did a citywide testing day. It's pretty good for the first year. Uh, and then the next year we followed, we we did a lot of work uh, the, in the lead up to the next year, uh, building up support in the wider community became uh, provincial. So we know that there were multiple communities, you know, uh, northern, southern, eastern, western that were doing it. We even got the Jim Ryder, the Minister of Health, to get tested in Regina. Wow. Uh, and we really got some good steam. Then we partnered with the Canadian AIDS Society the following year, and this last year, 2018, uh, we offered it uh, National HIV uh, Testing Day first ever. Uh, all the provinces were involved. I think one of the territories was involved. And so this year, it's going to be even bigger, and it's going to be one of those things that builds up steam every year. Um, you know, when we were able to get in 20. 17 we were able to get i think 50 tests done and that's a lot for one day yeah. uh um it, that was a lot for one day and so this year we did even more and next year we're looking to do even more and we're more getting great. yeah and so it's one of those things that gets really good publicity this year we got the new police chief troy cooper tested we got morgan hackle uh the fire chief saskatoon fire chief tested charlie clark uh hillary goff there's uh, mayor city councilor yeah. um we had shirley from uh comfy you know uh metis rep there getting tested you uh, sherry benson our mp got tested uh we did a really good job of doing outreach this year
year and next year we hope that it gets even bigger so hiv testing becomes normal everybody right. should be tested you know at least once once a year we think when you're getting your regular blood work why not just get an hiv test well especially in a community that's three times more likely to be infected yeah, exactly so now let's talk a little bit about um prevention so we we talked about needle, needle exchange so is there any is there any data that you have collected or anything to show are like our rates going down or are they no they, the so they've increased the last they've year increased. Okay. yeah and so part of that part of that you got to be careful in terms of what data you listen to because depending on who's interpreting it people say it's because our testing's got better and i think one of the ways no, that we're actually leading in saskatchewan is our testing right. is quite extensive but to say that our rates have gone up because of the testing is is bullshit like we um the rates are going up because more people are contracting hiv okay. um it's just it's just simple simple equation and you can also test that with viral load um depending on the clusters and stuff like that that data takes a bit to get back but more people are contracting hiv this last year and i I don't know if it's going to be any better this year and so um so we you know in terms of preventative one of the things that we've done is um is uh we partnered with the saskatoon sexual health network or sorry i should stop saying network saskatoon sexual health and we um we developed condoms they had done a condom campaign called the wrap it up you can check it out at uh, wrap it up wrap it up sk.ca uh they have a website there and they did it for all the southern communities and i'm from the north i'm indigenous and so i thought why don't we do this for the indigenous northern population who right. were kind of left out and so we talked to them and they said sounds good uh so we put our money where our mouth is we kicked in a lot of fundraising dollars we developed a condom campaign that's in Cree, Dene, Michif, and English uh, for uh, 49 northern communities, 100,000 condoms last year, 50,000 condoms looking at this year. Great. Next year, if we can up, up our fundraising total, it's going to be back up to 100. And so we, um, and we were the first uh, uh, Indigenous language condom campaign I think in the world potentially, but for sure in Canada. And so it was a big win for us uh, to raise awareness and then also get people, um, people talking about safe sex practices in terms of preventative. Here, one of the things we'd like to see across the province is uh, safe injection sites for sure, safe consumption sites and uh, access to drug pipes. Um, It's a question of money though, you know, a lot of it and and Mm -hmm. how, and who's going to implement it and do you do it on a trial or what? And so, um, but we think that there's been some studies out of Winnipeg and Edmonton that have shown good data that um, that can that can speak to the fact that when they introduced uh, drug pipes into the IDU community to help with their HIV rates, because people you're less likely to contract HIV if you're smoking your drugs versus shooting your drugs, right? If we share oh, a pipe, the chance to me to tra- transmit it to you is much lower than if I'm giving you a needle that I just used and I'm HIV positive, right? right? Not and so so that's kind of where um, where we're hoping it's going to go is more. Around the preventative side because we have done as a province a very good job of expanding needle exchanges if you look at you know five years ago till now there's way more needle exchanges available in this in the province throughout most communities yeah. uh, at least around hubs and so we would like to see that expansion keep happening but the introduction of safer smoking supplies the other thing is public safety wise uh, a pipe uh, a small pipette for smoking meth I can step on that and it's shattered glass now if I rub my boot back and forth on it, that's it's going to blend into the gravel, into the pavement. Versus if I have a rig there, it's yeah. going to be quite obvious, you know. And so, um, it it also helps with the community safety side as well. So how so how do you explain then? Um, I mean, we're we're implementing great needle exchange programs, but our rates of HIV are going up. So how like how, yep. what would you just say to someone? And say, well, clearly that's not working. Uh, I would say that um, there. So I talked before about the relationships that's needed. Um, one thing that I, I have to be careful what I say here, but one thing that I think happening is people are adopting harm reduction practices, but it's harm reduction light. 
It's oh, like, um, it's not uh, fully embraced harm reduction. Okay. You hear a lot about needle, like we hear a lot about people when they go into needle exchanges, they have to listen to an educational pitch before they get their needles. Oh. That's not good. You know, um, uh, the other is, uh, you can do those, but while I'm prepping your package that I'm going to give to you, yeah. I'm providing that education casually, right? Because you're planting seeds then you're, and just little bits of information. So when somebody comes in, like I said, I might talk about the need for alcohol swabs, or I might uh, say, Oh, make sure you're, you're using a disposal bin. That's, that's all the education I'm going to provide them that day. Um, so we hear a lot about people going into places and, uh, and then we also hear about, um, needle exchanges that aren't necessarily as accessible. So, um, so when people go in there, they don't feel as welcome. Um, you know, they're, uh, they don't feel like they're, they belong. Plus there's a lot of needle exchanges, like even including ours that is staffed. We don't get funding to staff our needle exchange. We do that. Uh, we do that from all of our other contracts. We, oh, we, see. we provide it in there. So having dedicated staff to those different programmings is really, is really needed. And we also need a place for people to use because we can have needle exchanges, but if they're going to go back to the trap house and using the trap house, well, yeah. same problem. Right. And so where people are going to be sharing. And so that's where the safe injection sites really do come into play uh we need to be able to provide an environment that's welcoming uh that's relationship based and that people can use it in a safe way so that we can engage them in, in care if they want to be engaging with care the other thing is people might not want to be engaging care right. the overall goal of a safe consumption site is safe consumption it's not get you into treatment right. and you hear a lot about that logic which um when people talk about safe injection sites they'll say we need to we need to link them to treatment and so you're making an awful lot of assumptions about a person you don't even know they're just an archetype to you right. you know they're they're a person that needs to get in treatment because they use them. Don't get me wrong. I'd love for everybody to get treatment and clean, but our treatment facilities have less than 10% success rates a lot right. of the time. Right. There's a reason for that. It's because we force people into treatment rather than engaging them yeah. uh, where they need to be engaged. And uh, harm reduction practices, when you ask people what they think of harm reduction, a lot of times it's uh, you know needles. You, know, you might get the odd person to say, oh, it's also safe uh, seat belts. They don't look at harm reduction in a holistic model through that medicine wheel model, which is harm reduction is not just about reducing the physical harm. It's the emotional harm it's a spiritual harm it's the mental harm and so if somebody if somebody's coming in why are they using a lot of times people are using i could tell you horror stories of some of our clients i had one client who was locked in a suitcase for two weeks and the only reason she got let out was because the guy would let her out to eat pieces of her he was eating her alive oh and then God. eventually she escaped she ran into the street she got support and you know but that woman Oof. that woman used until she was dead yeah. Why did she use till she was dead? Oh, because she was a no good junkie, or because she was severely traumatized, yeah, exactly. right? And so, um, so what people would tell her, "You need to get into treatment." She was using to suppress the memories yeah. of that instance. Of course, Not of to mention the the years before that, where she was in foster care, getting sexually abused, yeah. or whatever, right? Yeah. And so, um, and so when people engage with us a lot of times we'll talk to them and if somebody tells me that they were sexually abused and I know that they're a chronic uh, drug user, I'm not going to just say, well, we need to get you into treatment. I'm going to talk to them till they tell me they're ready to get into treatment because I know that reducing that physical harm of using is actually going to increase the emotional harm done onto that woman. And that's count. That's one example. I can give you an example for every client that we work with where right. that happens. Like people don't just use because it's fun. Right. People are using because of a lot of complicated situations yeah. and you have to make the, it safe so that 
they can talk about it so you can start to deal with that and so say i say with that same woman i get her into treatment she gets off drugs for that short time or she goes to prison gets off drugs for that short time which happens uh when she comes out if i don't have a plan to deal with that emotional trauma yeah she's fucked she's going right back into the cycle and that's what we constantly see which is why we have such low success rates right and that you have to keep in mind those success rates that's mixed in with drug use and alcohol use and we have much better success with alcohol users than with drug users and so if we if we just looked at the crystal meth or or cocaine or uh, you know uh, opioids uh the success rates i think would be even lower than that 10 percent uh you know and so it's it's just one of those things where we don't we're not looking at we're not looking at people's traumas holistically we're looking at what do i need to get make sure that my my morals are justified or our organization's morals are justified instead of what's working for the client well i know the longer the longer i do this especially on the the podcast and I mean, my own, my own values, my own morals, my own ideas in the drug world have drastically shifted. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, not very many people are going to have that experience. So hopefully we can keep sharing these messages and getting it out there. But, you know, I used to think, I would say probably within the calendar year, like the goal should be the, the best way to help this person is for them to become clean, clean of all dr- drug substances or whatever. And now it's just like, well, who the hell am I to say? Like, well, this person has been through hell in their life. I th- I'm at the point now where it's like there are some people where they should be using drugs for their entire life the same way that because of what they've been through the same way that you know if I had ADHD I might choose to take Ritalin for mm-hmm. for the for the entire life to help me manage my day-to-day life based based on the the trauma and the mental health trauma that these people go through why not let them keep using their substance to manage that? Yeah, and the yeah, the fact too is they're going to keep using them, and right, so they are anyways. Yeah, yeah, and so we may as well we may as well offer them information that so they can do it safely, provide an environment so they can do it safely, and we can engage them holistically. Yeah. So that if they do decide that they're ready to stop, we're there for them in that moment. But they have to identify that my staff are not allowed to bring up treatment until it comes out of their mouth first, like the client's mouth first, because and don't get me wrong, as, as soon as as soon as that person says they want treatment. Jackrabbit, you know, yep. we, we send them over to STC, yep. the Tribal Council Health Center. Their staff do a great job of getting them into whatever treatment center they can immediately, you know, as fast as they can. Great. And so, but we don't we don't bring that up yep. if 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 they don't want to bring it up. And you'd be surprised how that that approach actually we have better success rates with that approach than before if we were just trying to force it on everybody. And so people often get uncomfortable with us talking about we need to get comfortable with the fact that this person might use the rest of their life. Right that if if your goal is to get a behavioral change out of somebody you're coming into that relationship with an agenda that's right that's not an authentic relationship that's right and i think a lot of these harm reduction practice from from a person who myself i've spent a lot of time with with drug users Mm -hmm. a lot of time with with i mean yesterday i sat down and talked with a girl who uh, I've known for most of my career and one of she's she's one of my favorite people to talk to because the intelligence that she has shouldn't mirror up to the life that she's she's lived oh yeah and and she she has been through so much trauma uh, so much abuse you know she's had she's she's been abused by the community she's been violated by gang members she's it's she's been through hell and back mm-hmm. but when you talk to her her level of intelligence and social intelligence is is so high yep that I I'm, I always take the time anytime I see her to give her a granola bar and have a chat and just say like you know how's life going or whatever and and I learn so much from her every interaction and when I when I think of somebody like that 
and I know what she's been through. There is no way in hell this person will ever stop using drugs. Yeah. Like no way in hell. But her life is in such chaos now. You know, she's getting limbs chopped off. She's getting, you know, all kinds of stuff that our gang members, our gangs here are now doing to people. That's the risk. That's the harm that we need to reduce in this person's life. Right? Yep. We, we, we're often thinking harm reduction is, is, is uh, you know, let's give them a clean let's give them a clean needle and try to walk them over to a to a treatment center well i'd like to reduce the harm that's the cloud of harm that's around this person's life where they're being violated by organized crime they're being preyed on by uh men looking to get their sexual gratification from the street you know all these things that's happening let's try to reduce that harm a little bit and and create some stability I'm not quite sure how we do that, but I, th- I think the best thing you can do is you can be a safe person for her in the moments that you're with her, right? Because then, if something does happen that she needs to engage with you, she knows that at least there's one person who gives a fuck and isn't that's there right. for for their own needs with her, right? You know, and that's that's it's um it's a disturbing thing to come to terms with. Like mm-hmm. it was hard for myself even totally. to come to terms with that because people say you're giving up on them, and it's like no, it's the exact opposite. It's the opposite. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and um, it's it's a it's it's tough. Like, like I'm sure you've seen as well, uh, you know, just the amount of death that happens in this community is staggering. Last year we had, we had 25 positive diagnoses start engaging with us, Hmm. new diagnoses for HIV. We had 25 deaths that were HIV related, just HIV related. That wasn't even, that wasn't just the uh, people that were HIV negative that had died due to poverty related to issues as well. Uh, it's, it's intense. The amount of trauma that happens within, within doing this work, you know, and, and, uh, it's, it's, um, it's really important that self-care part as well. So when we talk about um, a cost cost to society, man, I hate I hate putting you know a dollar figure on a human. But at the end of the day, people are voting with their dollars. People yep. are people are concerned. Um, how do we how do we encourage or how do we talk to um, the broader community who doesn't have the exposure here and explain to them that a small investment into this area makes a dramatic impact. I think uh, Marcus Aurelius has that one quote. I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's like the most uh, the, the most difficult path is your is your way through. That's we the talking dollars and cents. Most harm reduction people avoid that talk. Mm-hmm. Something we need to talk about mm-hmm. because Definitely. there is a there is an element here that we whether it's a societal, political, or whatever. But the also thing is, we are not going to be able to save everybody if we bank if we're bankrupt, right? right. And so. Um, so I do think this is something that we need to get better at talking about. And so when, when I have people that come through and say these people are wasted dollars, you start talking to them the dollars that it's costing to keep things the way they are, then you really quickly realize that they, their conversation isn't actually about dollars, it's about morals. They're just masquerading it with dollars. So for instance, um, for instance, uh, this year on preventative side, um, we, we got naloxone deregulated. We talked about this before, uh, before the podcast, which mm-hmm. is we, um, we, uh, we advocated to the uh, provincial health minister to deregulate naloxone. And he did it within two months, very quick turnaround, nice. very, you know, happy with that turnaround because that's allowed a lot of lives to get saved. We know for a fact that that decision has saved a lot of lives. Yeah. Um, and so say we didn't have naloxone deregulated. So you say, okay, these people are overdosing and need an ambulance. That cost is very high. Yeah. They're then in the emergency room. That's the most expensive way you can engage with the healthcare system. They might be in for a hospital stay. 
bill's starting to rack up even more. And so say the opposite, say, oh, I've heard people say, well, these people should just fucking die. And it's like, okay, so that person passes away. Um, Then the coroner has to do an inquest in there. Uh, so that's going to cost quite a bit of money. Um, ambulance still has to respond. That's going to cost quite a police to investigate. So the, the cost, the costs there, no matter where you do it, it's way cheaper for us to give that person an naloxone kit. They administer uh, to their partner. And we've had people get the naloxone kits administered and they don't call an ambulance or they do, but the ambulance has the, the response that that ambulance and the hospital have to administer as a result of that person getting that 15 minute window of naloxone before ambulance can make it has saved the system countless dollars. You know how much it costs for an naloxone kit? Forty fucking dollars. So a forty dollar investment has saved us hundreds, hundreds per call, potentially thousands per call, just because we can get those kits out there. Preventative work saves saves a ton of money. money. Even even if you look at a safe injection site, we're dealing with countless issues in this community. About there's like the list of people that are the most problematic people that are chronically homeless, not engaging with services, or they're uh, they're you know they're constantly engaging with the healthcare system, and it's because they don't have a place to go to use. Right. If you give them a place to go to use, you can potentially even have a nurse on site that can engage them with their healthcare needs. So you're preventing them from engaging with the emergency room. Right. That that's going to be a countless countless savings there. Even the needle exchange, the uh, the amount of money that you invest in the needle exchange saves you ten. Uh, HIV t- sends you ten times the money that you're spending. One prevention of an HIV infection saves you over a million dollars a year. That's crazy. Wow. You know, and so why why aren't we talking about preventative? Like, uh, why aren't we investing in preventative? And we're starting to see that shift now. Um, you know, we uh, Saskatchewan became the second province ever to have universal HIV uh, medication coverage. So that means if you're HIV positive in this province, you can get your HIV meds paid for. Wow. Same thing for Hep C. Hep C is a big issue in this in this province that we yeah. don't often talk about. Yeah. Um, we have universal Hep C coverage now as well. If people qualify, uh, people are Hep C infected, and they meet the, the right markers they can get treated for free and so these are huge steps that our province has made in the last year that we need to build off of Um, and and the way that we've been able to build off of them is and i don't say we is just aid saskatoon i'm talking all the doctors all the other cbo's wider community is we've been talking dollars and cents and when you talk dollars and cents, people who think dollars and cents get it. We know the heartstring thing. Yeah. The heartstring thing's there. We need to get better at talking that dollars and cents so we can show the savings down the line for people. And if there aren't savings down the line, that's when you hammer on the heartstrings. Yes. But your first go-to should be, should be that. the I dollars, the, the cost savings. Well, I think that might be a change in in the type of executive directors we have in CBOs. Like yourself, you're, you're, you're a fairly young guy. You, uh, you're an innovative thinker. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that, you know, even same thing in policing in my generation of policing, the often the conversation that's happening in the patrol cars, like, why are we doing this? This is costing our city so much money. Yep. You know, and you, you're hearing cops say, like, this is not a cost-effective method of policing. Like, why are this management rolling this out? And like, you're constantly hearing that, those discussions. Like, we care about, I guess, you know, where am I getting the return on the investment that I've put in? Yeah. And uh, and I think another thing that's, that's happened over the years is, is we say, like, you know, and you brought it up as well, and I've heard it with other guests on the podcast, is this this idea that um, morality-based practices and, and we're, we're constantly up against, you know, these people are trying to inject their moral morals onto another demographic. But then what ends up happening is there almost is, ends up being a battle of whose morals are better. So us, we're on the front lines, and we care about these people more than you. That's why we're doing this. Yeah. And then, but the truth is, is the farmer who... The farmer who's out in his field working his ass off every day who might might have some more conservative views 
he cares too. Like, yeah. like he actually does care. He thinks drugs should be illegal because he cares about the population. He thinks that, you know, whatever. Like he thinks. I, I think. I think the that whole that virtue signaling. You know, that moral right. that moral us versus them. If you're actually a true harm reductionist, why yeah. aren't you meeting that person you're talking exactly. to where, where they're, they're at? at as well? Exactly. Yeah. And it, or are you just applying it to a select group because that makes you feel good to say, exactly. oh, I met that person where they're at. But when I talk to the farmer in the field they and don't. I, the, yeah, and then I get to feel better than them because, because that's what it's about for people who aren't meeting everybody where it's at. That's right. Because it's about making me feel better as a person. So I can make me feel better as a person by engaging this hard to dumb by client. Oh, they're yeah. so hard. Isn't it great for me to support them? Right. Yeah. And then why the fuck aren't you listening to me, yeah. farmer? You know, yeah, and you don't and get it. You don't get it. Instead yeah. of saying, well, what's the what's your argument around that? Okay. And sometimes you have to agree to disagree, yep. but you still need to be civil, engage that person in conversation. And it's, you can have fierce conversations with people and, and come to some sort of mutual understanding. Right. But this whole us versus them, the yep. walls up, that has to go out of the, out of the harm reduction world. You know, I, don't get me wrong. I think there's some groups that have done really good about making these issues come to the forefront. Mm-hmm. But in order for us to get mainstream acceptance and understanding, Understanding yeah. of harm reduction, we need to meet the other side where they're at and talk to them about issues that that affect them. That affect them, yeah, yeah. Because it's always about that. Everybody wants to hear the, how it affects. They have all. Everybody has their own value system. Harm reduction is a philosophy. It can work with any value system. Right. A lot of times when people say, "How do you? How do you understand? How did you come to understand harm reduction?" I was understanding harm reduction before I even knew what harm reduction was. When I'd go out and pull a fishing net, my dad would make sure I was dressed properly. He'd tell me how to avoid the different cracks in the ice. He'd tell me to make sure that the, the machine's running smooth so that if we had to get out of there in a heartbeat, you know, we yeah. could. And then I'd make sure the fire's going before you leave, all these preventative yeah. measures to stay safe. Right. You know, and so when people, when I started doing this work, I was like, oh, preventative measures, that totally makes sense. been doing this my whole life growing up. Yeah. Or on the farm, when you're when you're combining, don't stick your hand in that, you idiot. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so then you're like, oh, okay. You know, like all these things play into harm reduction. Right. But people, people have such a root, even people that you would think have a very uh, comprehensive grasp of harm reduction, when you start talking to them, sometimes you're like, oh, you have a very narrow view of harm reduction. Right. You're viewing it as a health philosophy or whatever, not right. a philosophy philosophy. Yeah. And and you, the ones that really do understand it, you know, there's uh, like uh, Mary Lou Gangon out of, uh, she's in Victoria now. Uh, you know, there's um, there's a lot of people that are have very good comprehensive understanding of harm reduction. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, Gabor Mate, for instance, yeah. very good understanding of harm reduction. There's, uh, of course, he's <laughs> like a harm reduction guru. Yeah. But then, then there's other people that you, when you talk to them, they think it only applies when you're working with injection with, drug users. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. We, I actually um, we're working right now on a t-shirt campaign we wanna we wanna launch, um, which is understand like you believe in harm reduction, and it's just gonna show like a bike helmet, a seat belt, you know, like all <laughs> these a safety harness when you're on the roof, like yeah. all these different things. Like this is harm reduction. You believe in harm reduction. Yeah, hundred percent. I'm watching you believe in harm reduction right now. Yeah, and that's like we hear like healthcare providers. They definitely do. You know, whether they yeah. do realize or not, police they yeah. definitely do. They're the yeah. leaders in harm reduction, yeah. preventative stuff. You know. Yeah, but some of these police officers I talk to, they're like, "Well, it's stupid that we're handing out needles. Like, why? Well, these harm reduction principles don't work." You just enforced a seatbelt ticket. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you drove to work today. You wear a bike helmet when you're when you're riding around. I've seen you. Yeah. You yeah. believe in harm reduction. Yeah, you're wearing a flak jacket. You have yeah. a stun gun. Like yeah, all exactly. those like the, yeah, so I think in terms of having these discussions and you have to come in 
with an open heart when you're talking to people that you think you disagree with. Definitely. You know, because Definitely. if you come in there, all you're doing is, is making conflict and making people more entrenched instead of having a dialogue. That's where I like this is Saskatoon, I think does a very good job with the truth and reconciliation work that the city leads in Saskatoon tribal council, you know, like they're just on the forefront of having good conversations. Right. And that's really where that's like, key, I'm, yeah. yeah. And I'm learning from them in terms of how to utilize that for harm reduction work. You know, it's not just about decolonizing our organization or, or harm reduction work. It's also about how do you have those good conversations with, with people that you might not always agree with and creating a space for community understanding, Right. and community readiness all those things right. you know yeah that's that's th this is definitely a community issue yeah. and it needs to be solved within the within the community no matter what your beliefs are no matter what your what your fa if you're a faith-based organization if you're a faith-based individual if you're not we can come together on these principles as long as the conversation is going in the right direction and the intention's always good mm -hmm. that's that's the nice thing about growing up in this community is the in, people's intentions are, are innately good yeah and it's even if their ideas are misguided i'm sure we can get to a middle ground yeah like i, I grew up up north and kind of a mix of up north and in the south uh my grandpa ran a farm down in blaine lake area and then my, my grew up in Lorange, and it's a very different demographic north and south but it's still very community based. And even right. if you look at the volunteers, like they show up when we host any type of event, uh, you know, all of a sudden we got more volunteers than we can deal with because whether it's we were us hosting the curling or world juniors or whatever, we have very good people. We have a very good community that cares. You look at what happened with the humble Broncos crash, our community cares yeah, about their neighbor, you yeah. know, like nobody asked what was the belief system of those hockey players. It right. was just, what can I do to help? Right. And I think, I think we need to, we need to talk about the fact that people care and, yeah. and that engages people when does, they yeah. know that you know that they care. Right. Right. Yeah. It's cause then they're not trying to convince you that yeah. they care. Um, I wanted to go back a little bit. There's a couple of things I wanted to ask you before we wrap up here. Um, one of them is when I heard you mention, um, handing out uh smoking yeah the yeah. smoke smoking kits or whatever but then yeah. but then saying like to try to change the way the method of using do you act do you think that an iv drug user would want to go back to smoking because usually i think so like the progression so, so one of our board members is a former crystal meth user yeah and uh, the way that she um the way that she quit was she went from injecting to smoking and then off and so um, that's const that's what we hear a lot of times when people have weaned themselves off okay. is they go from injecting to smoking to off, okay. uh, you know, and they might even transition to another substance for right. a bit, you know, but, right. um, and it's just, and if somebody is going to start using drugs, you, I'd rather have them get used to inhalants yeah. than get used to shooting people and people will use what's free. Drug users are very economical. Yeah, yeah. So if you're it's only providing them a needle, they'll use the needle. If you're providing them the option of a needle or a pipe. The options there, you know, the and, and, and even if, and even if, uh, like the, the study out of Winnipeg, I believe it was the Winnipeg study, uh, showed that it actually helped for transitioning people down. And there was another study out of the States that showed it helped for weaning people off. Uh, the number that they were working with wasn't quite enough to have, uh, the, uh, it wasn't quite the baseline that you need to okay. go into clinical or anything. And right. it was community-based research. Right. Uh, but I think you could, you could, uh, if we roll it out smartly, we could easily study those numbers. So right. we could, we could, we could offer, say you did it, um, say you did it out of a needle exchange or a safe injection site in Saskatoon. 
Saskatoon, you could you could easily do a study uh, for minimal cost to show we're going to offer pipes and then we just offer a very quick survey for drug users when they get the pipe. Have you ever injected before? Why are you yeah. smoking? Yeah. Those types of things. Make it really quick. Give them a quick honorarium. You know, five buck Tim card, ten buck Tim card, and then take that data and then roll it out even bigger. So if the data shows you the opposite, maybe it doesn't have the intention you want. Okay, no harm, no foul. We did right. a study. We can we can transition off. But I just all my gut, my instinct, and all the data that I've read is telling me that that's not going to be the case, and it can help us with those HIV numbers. And so, we we should at least be offering. And we we doing the same old in Saskatchewan is not going to work. Right. Our numbers have shown right. that's not going to work. We need to be innovative. We need to be. We need to. We need to be on the cutting yeah, edge try, of and try some things. And if it doesn't work, whatever, try something else. Exactly. And go from there. That's yep. interesting because I know the progression here. Um, in our in our intravenous community, we were using prescription opiates, and this is this is unique to to Saskatoon, but we we're using prescription opiates because um, they were readily available. Yeah, the yeah, oxys. Yeah, the oxys. Well, even before that, it was it was morphine diluted. Mm-hmm. That was what that's what our opiate um, intravenous drug users were, were enjoying, and then uh, and heroin was never able to take its toll, and it, they could never get their foothold. I would in, I would investigate countless numbers of drug traffickers that would always bring an ounce of heroin with them just to see if they could get it to stick and it never could yeah because we had so much prescription drug drug use we've the oxy crisis came uh there's a small switch there but at a little bit of a different demographic ours were still using the dilated and morphine Donors, yep. but now we've actually pulled back on the prescription um available so in our community you're you're given less you're giving less out all the time because it was a bit of a knee-jerk reaction again good intention poor consequences that occur from it is now they're less available for the first time over the last two to three years here we've seen a massive influx of heroin of course that's a tainted drug supply as we know from from bc and then we're seeing the deaths yeah with the fentanyl yeah i mean we did we had very few overdoses before when everyone was intravenously using dilated and morphine yeah when it was a controlled supply it was a controlled supply i mean they're stealing prescriptions they're they're rob breaking into houses and, and taking them out of the medicine cabinet but the individuals themselves aren't weren't dropping dead from it yep and now we're seeing it because we're there, they're using an illicit street grade so it's it's interesting i've never heard, seen anyone in the medical community actually like research like our our overdose rates and and using that as an example and i don't understand why maybe they're just misinformed but i i think i think the reason for that is when you talk to the main physicians who are involved with you know uh, the the people abusing prescription drugs or yeah. using street drugs they're overloaded man like oh, every yeah. everybody were my outreach team is running circle every like the, where everybody's there's capacity yeah. there's above capacity and then there's burnout like daily burnout <laughs> yeah. everybody's operating at the, the level of rpm said every cbo every community clinic is operating at it's and it's unsustainable you know right. we're um and so nobody's a lot of people's heads are just trying to you're just trying to get through that day slog right you know and right. and there the i think there are some you know some People are trying to do some different studies like CRISM and things like that, yeah. which are going to be, I think, helpful. But the reality is everybody's just so overloaded that it's it's hard to think. Pre- and plus, uh, a lot of times people are are they're unsure how to do those major big shifts, you know, um, yeah. and they take a lot of time to chip away at it. And so if you're every day 
people are saying to some say that one lead physician why don't you do this and he's like shit i started this I, i'm doing this yeah. i'm seeing more clients than any private clinic right <laughs> what, yeah, exactly. what do you what else do you need from me yeah. because there's unless you invent another 24 hours a day yeah. i'm not going to be able yeah. to output it and so we do need we do need more research in the community i think having the king the dr king show up you know malcolm and alexandra king show up i think is going to help us with doing some research in the community the chemical indigenous uh, health research very hiv hep c focused i think that's going to help i think chrism starting to get more active here that's going to help you know um, i think i think we need to get more research in the community yeah. uh, cbo's tend tend to be reluctant to have research um, and i'm definitely one of those cbo's that's reluctant my thing now is if you're doing research in the community you need to be in living in saskatchewan i don't give a fuck if if you yeah. come to me from ontario all you're going to do is utilize our numbers our demographic yeah. to get yourself more money for another bullshit yeah. research in yeah. ontario you're going to talk about how terrible saskatchewan is yeah. and then we'll never fucking hear from you again yeah. so i didn't work with the kings until uh, i met i was talking to them and they said oh we're moving to saskatchewan what do you need you know, Chrism's getting more involved. What do you need? Yeah. And so that's who we need to be engaging in research. We do need to work better with the university, but I think if if we're actually going to get ahead of this, we need more research. But it needs to be local research. That's we don't right. need we don't need any more outsiders coming in and telling us what to do. I, I like that. I appreciate that um, at uh, at the stimulus conference there. I think you <laughs> shut down a question there from somebody, and it was just like, you know, what? we don't fucking need to know what 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 worked in vancouver we know what we need in saskatchewan yep. and we're on the road to get there like we don't need this idea and, and the truth is 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 drug culture is very geographical yeah very geographical we've had we have completely different user base a completely different supply supply yeah everything's different um the last thing i wanted to touch on i was so when it comes to when it comes to safe injection sites, I was always I was a little leery of a safe injection site, not because um, I'm against the concept. It's more or less I want if I'm if I'm investing as a taxpayer, you know, a few million dollars of, of community money into a facility and, and having this operational, I want to make sure it works and that our, our it's going to have a positive impact. So I brought this up with. Uh, and the only reason I was thinking maybe not was because it's freaking cold here, right? Minus yeah. 40. I know that our users are going to a trap house where their friends are, where it's safe, where it's warm. Why would they then get their ass on a bus or walk down the street and go use a safe injection site? So I, I brought this concept up with Garth Mullins. I don't know if you met him at no. the... But Garth Mullins is an, is an activist in Vancouver and... Um, and a very knowledgeable... Um, very knowledgeable guy... Um, definitely an activist um so i said so i brought this up with him because obviously he's he's all about that and he said well you need the minus 40 model and i was like oh there's a minus 40 model like what is that and he goes well you already you already explained it to me he said you, they're going to the trap house to use so he said go to the trap house provide the person who's running the trap house with all the harm reduction yep. materials and facilities pay that person to make the community better and there you go that's the minus 40 model i was like Oh, I've never heard that before. I've never even thought about that concept. What, what do you, what would you think about something like that? So we do that. Do you? Oh, <laughs> yeah. nice. So we have a couple people that run trap houses. Uh, we have a couple people that run trap houses and they really got good relationships with yeah. them. Um, you know, I'm not saying they're perfect neighbors, of you course know, not. uh, but, um, the amount of, uh, sharing needle sharing in their, in their sites is pretty little. We don't have many positives appear in our neighborhood. Um, we do have a number of overdoses appear in our neighborhood. Yeah. 
you know, but we we were we we supplying naloxone kits to them and talking yeah. to them about the need for those. Um, you know, and and if they want them, we we give them the training and give them the kit. Um, we I think that 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 model works, uh, but I still think we need a safe injection site because the issue is um, we can make trap hoses is is is. We can supply them the supplies, yeah. and I think we need to do that. You know, a group uh, Saskatoon Cares goes and walks around and, and goes through a couple of trap hoses and gives them new new supplies. Um, uh, but I still think we need a site. I think you can, uh, for instance, we are not in the we're in the core, but not really. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and we're about ten blocks off of uh, thirteen blocks off of twentieth. Right. Um, that's and that's if they're in Riversdale. A lot of times they're in Pleasant Hill. Yeah. We have people walk over to come hang out at a drop-in center during the day in winter. And it's because we have the right environment. Gotcha. So relationship. People can stay as long as they want. We have coffee. We have food, um, which is something that trap houses don't, don't offer. Yeah. That's no, true. A, a, hot yeah. meal, a hot meal beats <laughs> a granola bar any day. Yeah. Uh, and I think the other thing is we provide we provide a safer alternative. Like we provide a safe environment where people right. can come in and, uh, you know, potentially sleep um, or even just just read the paper right um you know and, and i'm not saying that a we, safe environment where where there's people that you trust and at least for the window that you're in that room you yes. know that you're not about to get home invaded exactly you're not you know you're not about to get your your stash stolen. nobody's gonna kick in the door and shoot you up and yeah. all that stuff and so the um and then the other part is we employ peers like we i can't stress one thing i didn't talk about is they need to employ peers yeah um you employ peers in a safe injection site I'm telling you, the retention is going to be there. Be huge, Peers yeah. are way better at engaging this population. Most of our staff have a history of addictions uh, or family members with addictions, and yeah. and they can they can talk the talk. They've walked the walk, and so. Um, I think that need to employ peers in any sites you're doing, including the minus forty model, which is going to the different trap houses. But yeah. um, the 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 one, yeah, I, I just think the so. I think we need to be doing the minus 40 model, which yep. is going in, which we do. We have people who run trap houses that That's come. That's awesome. Yeah, but I also think we need a site. We need a site in Saskatoon uh, because we're still having people die. We're seeing the amount of people that die from overdose increase, uh, uh, especially with fentanyl now coming around. And I just don't think the fentanyl is going to stop. And so we need to be preemptive in order to uh, save lives because uh, a dead person can't recover. Right. You know, uh uh, where you mentioned t-shirts we're actually just uh, getting our t-shirts printed up that show a naloxone kit kind of all deconstructed awesome. and yeah. then it says uh, bring them back nice. because our thing is we want to make sure people are alive we can't work with people if they're dead um, and the amount of trauma that happens when somebody does die and even if it's in a cluster that community really tra- tra- is traumatized so you're talking about all those people then engaging in the system or disengaging with the system even more which is going to cost tax dollars down the line but I think we need to have a site that's run you know and if, if the risk is when you hear people saying about community like community dollars why do i want to invest my dollars in this you know what's a real safe way to invest your community dollars is cbo's we're the most cost right. efficient there Very is efficient. something that's going to cost the healthcare system tons of dollars yeah. we can do for a fraction of the price and a lot of times we can be more responsive because we are a cbo so we're, right. we're community around we have to listen to the community a lot more less uh, bureaucracy less, way less yeah. bureaucracy and and we as a cbo we take public safety very seriously uh we take staff safety very very seriously, uh, but we can just be a bit more responsive, a bit more flexible in our response. And so, right. um, you know, I think we need to, I think we need to, we need to, 
we need to implement what's best practice and a safe injection site is proven to be best practice. Um, and I think, I think the amount of investment that we're going to be need to solve this issue and to save money, uh, we're just seeing the, we're just seeing the a little bit right now. Right. Um, you know, it is going to take some investment to, to deal with this issue. So what can people do or where can they find you if they need to get, if they want to reach out and, and support what you guys are doing? Uh, so you can go to our website, aidsaskatoon.ca. Uh, you can go to our Instagram or Twitter. They're both labeled at AIDS, at, at AIDS Saskatoon. Um, our Facebook, facebook.com slash Saskatoon. Uh, we're pretty active on, uh, our Facebook's not as active just because I hate Facebook, but yeah. the, uh-huh. our, uh, our Twitter and Instagram are very active. Uh, right. So if people want and they can, they can always come volunteer, uh, keep an eye open for job posts teens um we always have opportunities kicking around um you know with christmas season coming up and don't know when this is going to air but we always have we always have things in the go and we have we have different forms that we do in the public so come out get involved great okay well thanks a lot jason thanks for all the work you're doing and uh keep it up we'll have links to all of all of uh the eight saskatoon uh social media pages and website on the show notes great thank you well i hope you enjoyed this episode of this say no know.org podcast Please head over to your social media pages and follow us. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Twitter handle is at SayNoOrg. Also, check out our website, www.saynoknow.org. And most importantly of all, please hit the subscribe button on wherever you're listening to this podcast. And tell all your friends and family, because we need all the support we can get. We're in this together. We're trying to make some positive changes in our community. And as far as we know, education, sharing stories is definitely the best way to do that. So catch you next time.